we are talking about Russia and Ukraine after a very long time. In fact, a very long time, the longest, longest break since the war began or since the invasion began. And the important thing is, this time, as we revisit the subject, we are not talking so much about the battlefield. In fact, we are not at all talking about the battlefield, mostly not, some references apart. We are also not talk, talking mostly or mostly not talking about Ukraine. We are talking about Russia. And instead of the battlefield, we are now, we are now focusing on Moscow. So something happened in Moscow today that didn't happen last year, which routinely happens. Vladimir Putin took over power in 1999 in Russia and he's been in power since. At the end of every year, that is before Christmas, he holds a publicly televised press conference kind of thing. It's a long uh, freewheeling uh, session where he takes questions from his citizens for some time. These are all televised. People can bring their grievances, questions, and then he answers questions from his journalists. Some foreign journalists who are based in Moscow are allowed to be there. Of course, you might say that the questions are scripted or they are filtered, but it's, it's an opportunity for people, one, for people to ask him questions, and second, for the rest of the world to hear Putin's views. Important thing is, this year's, this year's session is significant. It has just ended, by the way, and one reason this episode of Cut the Clutter will be a little bit delayed is that we were waiting for the session to end and for all the English subtitles to appear. So, session has just ended. The session lasted more than four hours, more than four hours of live press conference because his answer to each question is like a speech. There are many important takeaways. Everything has not yet been subtitled, so we haven't seen everything in subtitles, but we've seen the highlights. The important thing is, last year, he had missed the same session. That's the reason I said this year's is even more important. He missed it the last year because at that point, his armed forces were in real trouble. They were caught in a quagmire in, in Ukraine. His idea that he was going to roll over Ukraine, reach Kiev by day, by D plus 5 or D plus 4, as they say in the armed forces language, it did not happen. On the other hand, he suffered reverses. He was thrown back. He also lost some important, important sort of landmark places that he had, he had captured earlier or that his armies had captured earlier. Kherson being a good example. And he was, he was suffering heavy casualties and he was thrown on the defensive. December last year, he really looked out of sorts and looked like Russia was on the verge of losing the war. Right now, Russia looks far from it. Now, it might be, might be a stress to say that the Russians look now today seem on the verge of winning the war, but today they look at a, in a better position in the war than they've ever been since the second week of the invasion. Until the second week of the invasion, you thought the Russian forces, those, those big, big, big convoys of armored vehicles were still, still 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 targeting Kiev and ultimately they will get there although he had suffered reverses from day three onwards but a lot of lot of the territory was taken and his forces are moving forward after the second week since the second week for Russia and Putin's forces it had been downhill in Ukraine now for the past few months it has begun to look like it is changing the situation has changed dramatically on the ground what has happened? The situation, the battlefield has stabilized. The battlefield has stalemated. A stalemate, usually you would say that a stalemate is bad news 
for the attacker. So in this case, Russia is the attacker. So you would have said, all right, stalemate. So it's bad for the attacker because an attacker had objectives. The defender did not have objectives except to defend themselves. In this case, however, the difference is that six months back, it is Ukraine which now armed with a lot of modern weaponry from the US, from its European allies and backers. It is Ukraine that launched a very major, very massive and very ambitious counteroffensive on the Russians. That counteroffensive, it is now widely acknowledged and also in a lot of the international media that we read from, a lot of the media that we were reading from earlier. And when some of you, some of you made critical comments that it looked like we were relying too much on Western media's coverage, and obviously we would do so because almost all of the coverage that comes out comes from what we call as Western media. These are globally respected publications with globally respected journalists, weighty bylines. All right, they can be they can be a view from one side of the fence. That's understandable. You also get some view from the other side, mainly Russian military bloggers, when you can get English translations available. But really, the absence of a free press on the Russian side does sometimes give you one side, the, view, the viewpoint of the war from one side. That said, the fact is that even from that side now, the picture is different. So see this economist cover. This economist cover actually talked about the possibility of of the Russians winning the war. That set the cat among the pigeons. And I will tell you more about it as we go along. After that, after that, there were a bunch of stories in other international publications besides The Economist. There are two more stories. The first is from The Economist. That's the cover that you see on my screen. So The Economist headline says, Putin seems to be winning the war in Ukraine. For now, his biggest asset is Europe's lack of strategic vision. And then it goes on to explain where Europe is faltering, America is faltering, and where Ukrainians have their own internal issues, particularly with rising, rise, rising differences between, and the publicly stated differences, or a spat, I would say, between President Volodymyr Zelensky and his, and his armed forces chief, General Valery Zaluzhny. Valery Zaluzhny, in some interview, had said that he thinks that there is an impasse, impasse on the battlefield. That means nobody is moving anywhere. There's a stalemate. There's an impasse. Impasse is something that politically Zelensky doesn't like. So Zelensky publicly repudiated and upbraided his own armed forces chief. So that's the problem within Ukraine. But there is also also a breakdown in the U.S. in Washington. Joe Biden is not able to get congressional clearance for his $60 billion next round of aid that Ukraine needs desperately. In fact, that's the reason Zelensky has been in Washington asking for it. Republicans are blocking that aid because they have their own conditions. They are saying that they will say okay to this as also, as also for more help for Israel in the war in Gaza if their demands and conditions are met on Biden administration tighten, tightening immigration controls on America's southern border so that more people from the southern parts of America cannot come in as immigrants into, into the US. That's a, that's a polarizing political issue in America. All of those factors have made life much tougher for Ukraine, they say. And all of these factors, the economist says, has made Putin think that he's winning. And there are dozens of stories. And if you Google, you can find all of them. Just Google and say, is Putin winning the war or the state of Russia-Ukraine war? And you will find dozens of links that, 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 that pop up. But I will share a couple more with you. In the New York Times, 
Paul Son and Andrew Kramer. And, this, and the headline is, As Russia Grows in Confidence, a New Urgency Grips Ukraine. And once again, Carlotta Gall in the New York Times, Political frictions unsettle Ukraine as it seeks more military support, right? This is, this is also timed with Zelensky's visit to Washington. Now, what's happening on the ground is important to understand first. What has happened is that Ukraine launched this massive and very ambitious counter-offensive. They had trained these brigades to NATO standards for a long time. They were armed to NATO standards. They had new tanks. They had new artillery. They had new rockets, new missiles, and new air defense systems. They launched, they launched attacks towards the south, towards the south, hoping then to cut the Russian forces going into Crimea. And that's how these missile attacks from the Ukrainian side started on the Kirsch, Kirsch Bridge. That is, that is the bridge that connects the Crimean Peninsula with the, with the Russian mainland. So I, the idea was to put Russian forces under pressure there. What Ukraine also did was their NATO advisors and American advisors might have wanted them to only focus on the south if you look at the map. What Ukraine did on the other hand was they also attacked not just in the south but also towards the north and north and center and also the eastern side from there. In the process, the attacking forces got divided because maybe the Ukrainians got too ambitious or maybe the Ukrainians thought that they could not ignore that region because if they focused only on one, one region, then Russians also had their forces all across the frontier. So they could come in, they could launch a counter from there. In the process, the, one of the reasons is that Ukrainian forces got divided. In any case, the upshot is that Ukrainians made very little advances, if any at all, like 200 meters in a day, 300 meters in a day. That after they had lost nearly 20% of their territory and Ukraine is a very large country. Each one of those advances, each one of those days of advances, 200 meters, 300 meters, maybe someday 400 meters on a good day for them, they lost hundreds of people because one more fact has now come true, is now showing up in this war, which is that when two sides are about evenly matched or two sides at least have heavy firepower, then it is much easier to defend territory than to take territory. So the Russians took territory in the very beginning when the Ukrainians were not ready. They took territory in the very beginning. Now they are not taking any more territory. They have tried to take some territory in a place called Avdivka. See it on your maps. Avdivka and Russians have been battering their heads against this and losing about 900 soldiers a day. That is again something I read on international, international media and on OSINT, open source intelligence handles as well. And yet they are not able to make progress there. So you can see that it's very difficult to take any territory when both sides are well entrenched. What's happened on the battlefield now is that Ukraine, after six months of trying to push the Russians back and to from their point of view, hopefully delivering a decisive punch, a decisive punch against the Russian forces. They have stalemated and they've decided now to dig in in defense. So this winter, once again, Ukrainians are digging in for defense instead of attacking. Russians are trying to attack here and there, sort of half-hearted, except Abdivka, sort of half-hearted, but to some extent, the tables have turned. So it's a bit like that old line, Shikari, Abhiha, Shikar ho gaya. The, 
hunter has now become the hunted it was the other way around to begin with the russians were the hunters and they became hunted as the ukrainians pushed them back because of the big mistakes that the russians made early on in the war out of overconfidence or out of incompetence or whatever it might be now because ukraine's counteroffensive has failed and russians have brought in new firepower they are getting a lot more drones from iran they are got they've got a steady supply of fresh ammunition because they're burning up a lot of ammunition they are getting a steady supply of more ammunition from north korea and some other sources kazakhstan is helping with all of that with all of that russians are in a position to launch limited attacks across this very large frontier and the ukrainians are now digging in in defense and that has caused new doubts to develop in the ukrainian capital as well and what happens when things are going well for you when when you are moving ahead then everybody is together morales up moods up everybody seems are forgiven but when you are not moving ahead and when you are digging in for defense having conceded if not 20% about 16 to 18% of your territory then then recriminations begin then you should have done this you should have shouldn't have done this that kind of stuff begins and that's how this zelensky zaluzny public spat has taken place now vladimir putin obviously is enjoying this and that's the reason why last year at this time he was forced to skip this event i'm sure he would have hated skipping it because the whole world interpreted this as weakness on his part as an admission on his part that things were really bad for him and he did not want to exp expose himself to any questioning at all there were lots of rumors about him his health etc there is a rumor about putin in fact there is a half dozen rumors about putin every day that said this time he's come and spoken now all the things he has said i told you that this 4 hours are yet to be fully transcribed or fully subtitled but from what we have picked up and and from the highlights which has which have been which have been subtitled i can tell you a bunch of things number 1 he notices and he sees and he says so he notices it and he sees it and he said so that the western support for ukraine is now drying up and he is not wrong i told you europeans are getting tired and that is little bit bored that is the story cover story in the economist that says that mainly the main reason putin putin seems to be winning is the lack of strategic vision on the part of the europeans so that is one first western support for ukraine is drying up second he says and second he says and that's his key statement and that's the big highlight of his press conference the second thing he says that the aims of his war have not changed even 0% so they can be peace if aims of his war are achieved and what are the aims of the war demilitarization and denazification of ukraine what that means is a new regime a new ruling regime in kiev the departure of zelensky and all the people elected with him and obviously a pro moscow regime a regime that's a bit like lukashenko's in belarus that's what he wants if such a thing happens can you imagine what will what will be the mood in poland after that because the polish would think that it is their turn after that in any case that is not on the cards right now but he has now said very confidently that my aims haven't changed these are my aims can there be peace he says yes peace talks i'm happy to have peace talks but i will not make any compromise he also thinks he also thinks that republicans will now block any further aid to ukraine or they they will at least 
slow it down and europe is tired too and what is he encouraged by in europe he is encouraged by one his friend and near ally who's also a nato member that is viktor orban of hungary who he praised by the way in this press conference and also the election of a new government in slovakia which seems to be not so enthusiastic about backing ukraine so he sees fissures coming up in the european union this is also happening on a day when european union has just begun its large meeting and that's the meeting all the nations of eu are present that's the meeting where they will take a call on whether to admit whether to make the first moves to admit ukraine into eu or not that's also a meeting where viktor orban has upped the ante he said that he has a right to veto every every nato member has a right to veto so he so he has threatened to exercise his right to veto but at the same time is offered a deal also eu for example has promised 56 billion dollar in aid to ukraine so he is now saying that i will lift my veto on that aid to ukraine provided you lift your block on the 10 billion euros that are owed to me eu has blocked those funds for hungary because of hungary's failure to pass the eu's rule of law test hungary has many laws and regulations especially on immigration human rights which violate eu's laws and principles and those are reasons why a lot of the money that is owed to hungary is blocked by eu so he he's offering a deal give me my 10 billion you can take 56 billion to ukraine and obviously he's also indicating that if 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 the deal is done for me if i am paid my ransom then maybe maybe he will also take it easy as in not vetoing the moves to bring ukraine into europe on wednesday however eu allowed the release of 10 billion euros in cohesion funds for hungary so to that extent the ransom has been paid but that is the reason because the eu meeting is going on that's the reason why the timing of this putin press conference is so significant he said some other things he says for example from america that america is an important country we are ready to build relations with them and then i quote again from his interview as transcribed we believe that the world needs the us that is some endorsement for the us i don't know what he means uh, maybe he is being sarcastic i don't know but he says the world needs the us we are willing to 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 improve our relations with the us and he says i hope that one day relations between us and the us will be better he is also talked about the two americans detained in russia that is wall street journal journalist ivan gershkovich and also paul whelan who is a former marine and corporate executive paul whelan by the way has a 16 year jail sentence after conviction for espionage even ivan gershkovich is also arrested for alleged espionage charges so he says he's willing to talk to the americans and make a deal on these two so once again he sounded conciliatory but talking from a position of strength on the fighting he says we want peace obviously uh, but we'll not make compromise and he says but if they don't want to talk then we can keep fighting he also says i don't need to carry out any further mobilization because it's a claim that 5 lakh people have already volunteered to join the fighting why do we need mobilization and then he says that look ukraine's counter offensive has failed and he thinks that he can outlast his adversaries he says ukrainians are getting getting freebies but at some point these freebies can run out and it looks like they are already starting to run out now so once again 
His assurance comes from one, the fact that the battlefront is stalemated. He's being no longer pushed back. He can fight a defensive battle. And second, and he thinks that Ukraine's Western allies are tiring out. Also because they are democracies, they have public opinion. In fact, a recent Pew poll in America shows that less than 50% Americans now believe that America is right to give this level of aid and assistance to Europe. That shows a significant decline in American popular support for this policy. So once again, Putin's hoping that public opinion in the Western world, in Europe in general, but in the US in particular, with the prospect of Donald Trump's re-election as, as the election campaign begins, Donald Trump looks like the front-runner from the Republican side. A lot of the opinion polls now show him ahead of Biden as well. And he has clearly said that his first objective will be to stop this war and bring about peace, which means to which means even if it means I'm interpreting this, even if it means arm twisting the Ukrainians into signing a humiliating deal with Moscow. So that is why he's playing for time. He thinks that he's got time. He's got staying power. He's got his military industrial complex working. He's recruited more troops. He's also got more supplies coming from North Korea and Iran. So he thinks that he can play for time. Having come this far, I have to also give you some discussion on, on, whether, on whether Putin's actually winning now, whether tables have really turned. So after this Economist cover story came out, Ian Bremer, who's a well-known American expert and who we've interviewed on our Off the Cuff as well. He's a think tanker. He's also a global, globally respected analyst. He countered in a tweet, please see that tweet on your screens, he countered the economist story in his tweet and he said Putin has, number one, expanded NATO, number two, pushed Europeans to dramatically increase defense spending, three, faced 11 rounds of unanimous sanctions from Europe, four, gotten Ukraine invited into the EU, five, created the most powerful Ukrainian military in Europe. And you ask if Putin's winning. Now, this has caused a great deal of discussions. In response to this, also, the noted Indian scholar, the brilliant Swasti Rao at Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis, so let me correct myself and be precise, at the Manohar Parikar Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis, Swasti Rao, who also writes a column for us, so please do check out her writing on the print. She also responded to this in somewhat greater detail, and she said, and she said, so I am wondering, how to visualize a frozen conflict of sorts in 16% of Ukrainian land that was anyway under Russia's de facto control before the war started. Is that a win or a loss? So basically, Russians are where they were when they started the wars. What is it that they have won, she says. And then she says, this war has robbed Russia of its geostrategic advantages. And she, then she lists a bunch of points. This will run on your screen. I will read a few for you. You can see the rest. I'm also sharing the tweets with you. The tweets are also on your screen. But also the points will run on your screen so you can read them. And as I speak, so she says, one, grain export from Black Sea is no longer dependent on Turkey and UN-mediated grain deal because, because now, now Russian Navy is weak enough in Black Sea for, for the Ukrainians to be able to take grain out of there. Number two, Baltic Sea has become a NATO lake after NATO enlargement. Finland closed its borders to, to Russian migrants. Then Russia is cut off from Western tech. It's becoming more and more dependent on China and all of its communication systems are now, information systems are now infested with Huawei. So that makes Russia vulnerable, a lot of Russian, young and urban Russians have left. 
Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, both are now equivocating on their support for Russia. I am paraphrasing what she is saying. Serbia, which is the Russian ally in the Balkans, is now working faster to join the EU. Europe, she says, is undergoing a structural paradigm shift to finally take its security requirements seriously and militarizing itself. And she says this has come at a time when in Feb 2022, before the Russians invaded Ukraine, NATO was getting irrelevant. Two, Europe was divided and sleepwalking through the peace dividend. Three, France was drifting away from NATO. Four, Europe was dangerously dependent on Russian energy. Five, Russia's influence in Africa was getting enhanced and so on and so forth. So everything was going well for Russia in Feb 2022. By now, so many adverse consequences have followed the beginning of this war. At the same time, I gave you the other view, which is that just on the battlefront and also on the diplomatic slash strategic front because Europe's getting tired and America America has its own political internal political differences Ukrainians are also confused and right now they are also punch drunk their counter offensive having failed Putin now thinks that he has the upper hand and this shows fully in his body language and in his statements at the so-called press conference today